Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast, and I am your host, Dan Englander. And today's show is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. But for this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to give you a free checklist. That is the agency new business checklist, to be specific, and it is an eight-point cheat sheet for building a sustainable revenue engine for your marketing agency. This was based on tons of research and tons of experience we've developed in the field, working with a variety of different agencies all across the map, going after a whole lot of different verticals. This is based on over 7,000 campaigns we've done collectively. And it's everything that we've seen that needs to be in place to be effective when you're going direct to market. Because frankly, generating enterprise opportunities for six to eight figure agency services is hard. Getting proactive takes time and it takes consistency. It's, it's really a marathon, not a sprint, to be cliche. So it requires some preparation. So this checklist is based on, on all of our experience and it's going to help you set the right groundwork for getting proactive and achieving your growth goals. So if you want to download that, you can go to saleschema.com slash checklist. Again, saleschema.com slash checklist. So now for today's guest. And to give some context here, as an agency person selling into a brand or selling into an organization, you slot into a particular line item on the P&L. You slot into the sales and marketing line item. And that might go significantly towards one agency. There might be a spread of expenses or whatever, but you're generally fitting under one category. But what if the problem is bigger than just sales and marketing? What if you as an agency really need to blow up your client's wheel and reinvent it in order to solve their problems? What if you had the audaciousness to make those types of suggestions that you need to tear up not just your website, but all of your data everything on the back end. You need to get rid of this person, hire that person. What if you were making those types of suggestions? And in walks the realm of the consultant and the consultancy. And there could be a fine line between what an agency does and what a consultancy does and also how they sell and how they present themselves. So you may never want to go that far, but regardless, there are all sorts of great takeaways that you can get from the way that a consultancy represents themselves and does business in in the brand space that you might be going after. And with that in mind, today's guest is Joey Prince. And besides having an awesome name like that of a boxer from the first half of the 20th century, Joey is the founder and CEO of Wrecking Ball, which is a Miami-based consultancy. They focus on ideation, strategy, design, development, data, statistics, content creation for desktop, mobile apps, TV installations, and social. So he goes all throughout his career running the company, all sorts of in-the-trenches stories. I know you're going to get a whole lot out of this interview. So without further ado, please give it up for Joey Prince. Joe, thank you for being on the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, likewise. So, you know, you've come from the agency space historically and then have sort of moved on to this consulting model. And a lot of the times there's um, a lot of confusion in terms of what separates those two models. So I guess in your words, what distinction would you make between an agency and a consulting model? Sure. So for us, or at least how I think, the agency model is more so here's a service we provide and here and here's a need that you have and you go and fulfill that need. Where more by as a consultancy role is taking a, a look at more of what's happening within a company. Why do they need to do this? And not only offering a product or solution or service that will fulfill the need for that particular need that the client has, potential client has, but further seeing where you can extrapolate your services or ideation or experience share to other areas within the company that will be hiring you to grow either grow their company or help them to contact their consumers better or profit at the end of the day, or give a workflow solution. No, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. So, you know, in, in terms of that, it's definitely more of a broad framing approach. I'd love to hear more about your experience and what sort of pushed you into that direction of broad framing <clears throat> the work versus thinking of it on a project by project basis or thinking of it in sort of this, this narrow frame, like, you know, like agencies might sometimes. It's a blessing and a curse as creatives and creatives. I mean, not only on the pen and paper and art side, but also on the technology side, how we make things. It's in all of our DNA here to explore further and not just the status quo has never been good enough. So when we're always presented with a problem, or challenge. So historically, over time, as we're involved more and more into these companies, our clients, and get in deeper with various up the chain, the VPs, senior VPs, the C-suite, we'll add oftentimes hear things that we may not have been contracted for or hired for or brought in to solve, but from our experience in the last 20 years, have these have come across the same problems that these enterprise companies are facing and speak up and say, well, this is our experience that we did for one of our other clients. This could possibly possibly work here as well for what you're looking to do. And that raises an eyebrow. So, well, if you can think this way, what about this or this or this? And it just snowballs from there. Part of it also comes down to, historically, we started as a design shop years ago. Moving into the age of the web, you need to be able to build the back ends. And there were too many times we were stuck where we could design it, but didn't have the right people to be able to build it out. So years back, 15 years or so back in the days of Flash, we wound up building out our own experiences too. And that just extrapolated to who we are today, where we have the idea and we can build it out. And that's been very, very rare for the smaller shops, if you will. And it's been one of our key key proponents of driving success, not just for us, but for when the clients come. So coming from the agency model, again, going back to this is what we want to make, or this is the ads we need to sell. This is what we need to create. This is the video we need to produce. It's more so, but well, why are we touching? It's more the why and not just the how of everything going to get done. Right. That makes sense. And this is probably going to be a bad meandering question, but I'm going to go for it anyway. So I guess, how do you sort of balance the need to create something that scales, so to speak, quote unquote, scales in an agency model, you know, where we do this thing and we do it really well and we, and we do it over and over again, or we do this small grouping of things versus this completely blank canvas where you solve the problem by any means necessary. I mean, when you were building this, this, the ladder, which, which is my understanding, were you concerned? Concerned about being able to scale? Were you concerned about building repeatable processes, or is that something you just said, "Nope, that's not for me. We're just going to be the guys that solve any problem," you know, like SEAL Team Six or something? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, special ops. Many yeah. times we're called the digital special ops team.
team. So you nailed it mm-hmm. <laughs> with yeah. that. No, it's both. There are there are certain projects or components or software or even workflows that we build that are rinse and repeat that are proven and work. Some of the IP we own, some of the IP is duly owned between us and our clients. Others just completely work for hire. But we get bored and there will always be a learning from what we have done to carry that forward to the next thing over and over. So there are some things that we have productized internally that we reuse with clients. Um, other times it's, it's starting from scratch, but with at least the foundation and the learnings of what we have done. We're not the model for make a product and scale it you know, to the masses, to the millions of people. For us, we're more, as you said, more of the special ops uh, kind of an agency and come in and, and fix or get done what needs to be done that others can't do. Right. And that makes sense. And, and I guess I'd love to hear some tangible examples of, of what you've done or, or, you know, maybe situations where people thought they had problem A and it turns out they actually have problem C, D, E, and F, and maybe a bunch of others. All right. As, as an owner of agency consultancy, whatever the word you want to call us now, we always look for the opportunities, right? All of us. And there's a one time we're at one of our clients in San Francisco we were first project brought into by someone we knew, walk into the conference room, white balls are filled with all these notes from the previous meeting. And as we're looking around and do the introductions, kind of fascinated by everything I'm reading around the walls. And before we even started, I said, tell us about this, what this is all in here on your walls. And the senior director we we're working with explained what the project was or the problem that they were trying to solve internally. And before we even got to the reason why we were there, we were already deep diving in how to solve this problem with them because they couldn't figure it out. It was a workflow solution that they need to put in place, internal and external, and wound up becoming a three-year project because we just took that and they took the ideas that they had and were able to flesh them out from our experience and, and bring them to life as a software platform. I mean, with, with that in mind, how do you typically go about setting boundaries with clients? Because you guys could potentially do anything and everything for them. I guess that's a big challenge agencies have is, figure, is, is being able to tell clients, this is the sort of thing we can do. And this is something that only you can do. I'd love to, to hear lessons learned in that regard. Yep. So let's start with the second part. There is, there is nothing only we can do. I don't like the word unique. I don't like the words we're the best at. There are so many good companies out there, large and small. And we have found where we where we cringe when we hear, or we, if we say we're the best at, we know we're really, really good at what we do. We have an offering that works for, but we can't claim to be unique is like Tesla. Unique is Apple. To us, that's what unique will be. So in, in that aspect, that's what we come across with even potential clients that were a very humble group. And we work well with partner agencies or companies that have to be brought in, depending what the, the goals are that need to get done. For the new clients, when they when we pitch them, for lack of a better word, they are already aware of our history or what we can or can't do. We do not have any salespeople. Everything comes in organically. So even though it's a, still a first meet and greet, they have some type of an idea of why or how or what we did to get there by way of introduction from somebody else. What they really don't know is what's in our DNA. And as, uh, as we look at... And have to explain the story of who we are, what we do, what makes us different, I guess is really the word that I was looking for. It comes down to passion, which many of us like-minded agencies, digital shops have. The passion, commitment, we don't know the word no. There is pretty much always a way to get something done. And if there's not, then we'll find the second best way to get it done or as close as possible to meet 
90, 95% of the, of the goals of what the company is looking to achieve. And that's, I think, a differentiation factor. And along those lines, when we do speak to these points and we do put together an estimate, it's rare that there are overages on that because we're already bundling um, extra room and budgets for the unknowns that always come up. So that's been a, a key help and key differentiator from hearing back from potential clients. We're available 24-7 and having the offerings from just the strategy to design and development, right? Then all, all in one house, it gives us the flexibility to experiment a little bit without worrying about, are we going to blow the budget because we have to bring in another contractor or subcontractor to do something that wasn't expected. So that's been from our clients as well, some of the items that they have seen that makes it a little bit different. Right, right. And, and in the past, you know, we talked about how, I guess maybe more so in the agency model, you've, you'd work with big brands that have been burned in the past by agencies. In your experience, what does that usually look like? So when these big brands are having a bad experience with an agency, how does that usually pan out? The things that we've heard the most are they're too expensive. I don't understand what they're what I'm being built for. Where is my account manager? The team in India that we're working with, we should not have been working with in the first place once sold in a team across the way. My team is not as responsive as I'd like them to be. I got stuck with the B team or it didn't work the way that it's supposed to or it wasn't architected right because if it was, we wouldn't be spending half our budget on fixing bugs that have nothing to do with us as a client, but has to do with the way things are architected internally. Recently, those are the probably the top five or six items that we've that have come back from. Right, right, that makes sense. And I guess you know, overall, you, I, I've heard whispers in the market about more and more brands opting for for the consultancy model, and then there's consultancies like Deloitte that are going crazy buying up agencies. I guess you know, h- how closely does that map to your experience, and what might be some reasons for that? If you agreed with that, such a trend that's happening. Yep, we see the trend. We know a few of the agencies that have been picked up by some of the larger consultants. And it makes sense on the consultancies part, even more so because the consultancies have all the data. They know how some of these companies work better than the companies themselves. The general ad agencies out there, while they do great work, they're limited to, from our experience and information we have, they're limited to the data that they can get, the insights that they have compared to the Deloitte's and the PwC's where they go down to actual consumer data or spending patterns where when you're speaking for an ad agency, you have your ad budgets and you know who your target demo is, but you might not be able to see the whole complete picture. So the route of the consultancy slash agency hybrid, I think is the way of the future. It's not even the future, it's here now, because as we're getting into more programmatic or more personalized experiences, data has always been key, but now even more so where it's easier to deliver these types of experiences. So it's not just, oh, we need to create an ad campaign for consumer acts. It's really like, well, we have these eight personas that we need to fulfill that we know as the top 80% of our sales funnel. How do we create a campaign for that with one media buy? Or how do we create a microsite or landing page or an app that is still the same framework architecturally, but can talk to these, speak to the different consumers or people who are using it based on their profile? Right. I, I think that's really interesting because we have all this history of you know a madman-like agency working with a brand and then they fill that slot, they fill the beverage spot, spot we got Coke and we can't work with Pepsi. And it's, it's sort of, and then you're tired at the hip for decades with that client. And now that's changed a lot. And it seems like these brands are looking for a lot more optionality, but also there's sort of this rising tide raises all ships effect where you know that if you're getting really good performance for one type of company, you know, you could potentially get it for others that are like synergistic to that, you know, and, and like when you're talking about programmatic and all these things that require massive amounts of, of data. So, you know, I guess my question is how much catching up do the brands need to do to kind of get away from this fear of, 
working with with a consultancy that might have worked with their competitor in the past. How valid would you say that fear is versus how much there is to be gained from the data, if that makes any sense as a question? The value on the data. I think from our own personal experience, there are many brands that do not realize what data that they have or have not partnered with the right companies to look at the insights of to where certain buying patterns or certain patterns may be that they're going by gut instinct. Gut instinct works great. You just have that feeling many times. And many times you're right, but there have been times where we are with clients or even potential clients and working with our ethnography team, looking at their data. If you one example, one company wanted to double their income within the next 18 months. Had a great plan based on what worked in the past. Looking at their insights, looking at their data, putting our team in place for about three weeks, the consumers they were targeting were not the right consumers that were going to get them there. And it was a total revamp of re-educating their sales team to, to, to speak to different consumers that were walking through the door of brick and mortar. And by educating these consumers and working with these other types of consumers, based on the data, this company would then succeed to get to their target within the 18 to 24 months rather than the current customers that they were looking at as, as the right customers to, to help with their growth. But within that insights, not only did it change the mindset of, of the C-suite up top, but also change their whole training program. They had to re-educate their sales team, the staff on the floor, why we speak to these people, which then changed the messaging, which just then changed the in-store signage. So it was a whole trickle-down effect, which also then changed their offerings that they had for the consumers when they realized that we need to also do, we're doing A, A, B, and C very well, but now we need to add in D, E, and F, and then based on this other insights and data. So data is key. Having the right partner to extract the right information without the emotion is also uh, also very helpful. Yeah, and th- that sort of begged another question that I thought of as you're talking about it, and that's how do you get these clients to have this come to Jesus moment, right? Where they they potentially have to be a little bit more humble and say, okay, we were wrong about a lot of things versus we just need help in this one regard. We're going to hire an agency to do XYZ project or whatever. Versus, versus saying, you know, we need help. We were wrong about everything. And this, these consultants are going to show us the way. I guess, like, what steps have you had to go through or what maybe what, what war stories you have from getting people to have that moment? So for, for the few, we're, <laughs> we're still in the trenches every day. It's a great question. Some companies don't want to hear it. They just don't care. Uh, we, can, we have information, the insights to show or history of, and um, it's just a political thing and they do not want to rock the boat politically in some companies, which is a shame because at the end, it's the consumers that really are the ones that get affected. Uh, The ones that are more open-minded, once we can show them a taste or sample, they get the aha moment. Wow, I didn't even know this was possible. And because of this, what else do you have or what else can we find out together? And then from this information, what do we need to do? Whether we hire ranking balls or you hire a different company, we don't really care. Uh, But once they have the information, it's almost like uh, it's the true aha moment. Like I really didn't realize or we didn't realize that this is a different path we could take. And this is why we, we left our either previous company or left our internal agency that we have, internal team, to see what else is out there. Take a step back because we're too much in the day-to-day. Uh, it's when they reach that moment that it becomes easier. Right. And I think you touched on something something really important. And that's as you, you're selling into bigger clients, you're selling into Fortune 500 and so on, politics becomes a, a bigger issue and you could have a completely truthful sales process that tells people the reality how it is. And that's, that's worse than if you lied to them because that might expose something that rocks the boat so much that nobody wants to take it on. So I, I guess with that in mind, how much 
would you say that's a phenomenon of talking to the wrong person versus presenting it in the wrong way? I guess if that makes sense. Do you, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you find you encounter that more when you're talking to somebody that isn't the right person to be talking to? Yes. When someone is speaking to the wrong person, you can have the best intentions, the best presentation, the best everything to help this company, and they just will not care. It's not in their agenda, depending on how high up the ladder that you're going within a lot of these enterprise corporations. So we've had the experience on both sides where politics plays a role coming in with the wrong person, with the wrong agenda, even though we have the ammunition to help this person or this team succeed. It's not on the top of mind for them. So it doesn't matter. Completely different experience when we do meet with the people that do have an agenda, the things that they need to get done, and we are brought in and can do our presentation. And from there, it's just like the sigh of relief or this burden lifted off the senior director's shoulders or the VP's shoulders, like, oh my God, I have the right team in place and they can work with our internal team here and we're going to get done whatever needs to be done. Uh, when you have that cohesive moment, serendipitous moment, it's endless of the positivity that can move things along to get done. Even outside of budget, you can go over budget, have things that weren't scoped initially and just keep going and going and going because you're helping them to solve the problems that they need to get done with politics involved. Hopefully there's not. For our situations where there have been politics involved, been known to speak my mouth uh, and it's not been very beneficial but at least people know that we're standing our ground on what's in the best interest in the case of one company in the case of the consumer and not getting involved in the the day-to-day of the mess that gets created sometimes in internal corporate politics. Well, I want to digress a bit. So when dealing with the situations where we're the underdog or not on the home turf, if you will, and working with the, the upper level management of these major corporations, it takes perseverance to keep on pushing and pushing and pushing. If you have the if you have the information to back it up or the history or the credibility of whatever it is that they're coming to you for, otherwise they wouldn't be coming to you in the first place. Uh, in our case, we've been brought in by someone says we, we want you want Wrecking Ball to come in and meet with Person X and we meet with Person X. We could have a great meeting together, but it's it's still not on their agenda of things that they want to do or get done. It's going to be buried. And it was the case in point for the last about 14 months with one project that needed to get done. It was the redheaded stepchild. It was important, but the business owner, it didn't matter. And now that there was a reorg in this one company, uh, things shifted around, priorities shifted around. And now what we've been speaking about the last 14 months is now one of the top initiatives for 2019 because someone took interest in it. There's a champion behind it. And now they want to see it to fruition. That's that's really great. And one thing that, that I've found is that it really helps to get people to understand timing, right? To get people to understand how long it's going to take to get something done and then how long it's going to take for the, the lag effects of that thing getting done are going to take to play out. Is there anything that you found to work well in your sales process or just planning process for getting people to really understand time frame and how much it matters? Always. So we're, we're, timing is essential. Any project we bring in, unless there's a hard, hard deadline, there's two ways to do it. If there's not a hard deadline, we will make a hard deadline because it can go on forever. One of our sayings is never done. And in digital, you can iterate forever until nobody's happy because it's never going to be perfect, right? So that's one area that we, we enforce on our clients. If there is no official deadline, we'll make a deadline around a conference, trade show, key meeting, quarterly report, whatever it might be that they can include within their presentation to their peers. On the flip side, if there is a hard deadline, then we take it the other way where we will put things in phases. 
depending what it is. Outside of an ad campaign, of course, because an ad campaign is, is an ad campaign, but when it's more for an app or a microsite or a general website or even an Internet of Things experience, once it's the first version is done, we can always iterate on it. So we try to keep to an adherent schedule, try to get it done quicker, whatever, to get to market as close as perfect possible visually, but for feature set-wise, have a backlog. And if it's, it could be a one-year backlog and have a team in place to be able to keep on putting these uh, updates into place as the platform or campaign progresses. Right, right. And earlier you mentioned something that was interesting about, about coming into an area where you're the underdog and having to to compete in that area. I guess what's what's worked for you there? You know, when you're talking about these big complex projects selling to companies where you know, you know somebody's internal that might <clears throat> supposedly know the area better than you or maybe it's a competing agency or something. What have you found to work well in terms of having an edge? Probably the biggest thing would be an in-person meeting as opposed to a Zoom or a conference call. Uh, the in-person is where we found that that handshake, the speaking, looking in the eye has been probably the biggest proponent of us to overcome some of our competition, uh, even the larger agencies or the larger consultancies when th- things like that have come up. Outside of that, it's a, it's a commodity. We're, we're selling, we're all selling similar types of solutions. And it, it's for us, it's a personal relationship that really, really matters. And until people get to know who we are, or why we do the things we do, or why it's been 20 years of, of success. I think the in-person time, even if we have to fly to, we're in, in Miami, but fly to LA for the day and fly back the same day for a one-hour face-to-face meeting, that goes a long way than, than um, having a conference call. The second thing is, is really, if we're interested in the project, and as many times we'll turn down a lot of work, but if we're interested in the project, then we will ensure we can do as much research and information behind the scenes to get so we are prepared for things that may come up on the introduction call or meeting that are not scoped at all. And that's, it could be about culture. It could be about do good events that they're doing within the area. It could be around studying their business model and speaking about other points that are not public or that they don't know or that we know or, or anything that provides a value add to show that, that we're genuine and that we care about the brand. And we're not just, there's no salespeople there to just blow smoke up your ass. All right, we're here. Let's go and do it. But there's there's a connectivity to the brand and to them as a human being. Right. And I think that's that's really important. The, the value face-to-face is, is not to be diminished. But I guess one thing is you have to make sure that it's worth your time to be getting on a plane, staying in a hotel, et cetera. So is there, is there, is there any process or any maybe checklist you go through to make sure, okay, this is worth my time. I'm going to go, I'm going to go to the airport now sort of deal. Yeah. It's uh, first, it comes down to culture and DNA and feeling someone out on, on the calls and, or on screen share video chat. If we don't click on a phone call or a first introduction or a lunch meeting or at a conference, then we don't even pursue anything further. It's just not worth it. That's Can you elaborate on that a little bit? And, and maybe it's hard to figure out when you click, because that could be really subjective and situational. But is there anything that you see as a red flag? If somebody says X, you're like, I'm not getting on a plane for this person. <laughs> I think it's the way that some people possibly present themselves. And as we're dealing with the higher level people in a lot of these companies, you got senior VP marketing or above, everybody is smart at this point or they're successful or somehow they got to this position, whether they deserve it or not. 
is another thing. But when a person comes off as an asshole, we will just not engage. That's, that's, it's just in mm-hmm. blunt English. I don't know if you can put them on the podcast or not. But yeah, we're, we're not a family show necessarily. So all right. <laughs> it's okay. All right. So for us, it, it's really, it comes down to DNA first. You can dress the part. You can speak the part. But if physically, emotionally, mentally, there's just something that is off between a relationship. Friction, I guess it could be. Even for nothing bad, we just don't click. That's our first flag that we're just not going to do this. We look at also going in uh, LinkedIn profiles are important or their history or their pedigree and see who, who are they friends with? What have they done things with? Have we been burned by anybody in the past or have had uh, not great experiences with or our colleagues at other companies that have had this guy look out for this guy, this girl. On the front, they're great, but such and such happened and uh, we didn't get paid or the project went under or we got thrown under the bus or whatever it was. The Not omitting the good, but it's looking for, for the bad first as to the whys we should not be. There's other times where we can have a conversation with someone at a summit or at a conference or workshops and become friends for life, but never do work together either, which is a shame because there's so many times we hear the problems that they have, but they're stuck legally with their current shops and they can't work with us or they have to work with the big consultancies because that's within their contract. They can't work with the boutique shop, no matter how good we are or the personal relationship that we have. So, but, but getting back to the original, it's really, it's a, it's a sniff test first. What are the ideas they have, who they are, what's their pedigree and not so much, you know, uh, as long as they're, they're, they're willing or accepting of others or looking to better themselves by bringing on new people to work with and not always enclosed in their circle, I think is also is a strong factor into if we're going to pursue this or not. Yeah. And you touched on something there, which is the sort of, you know, big, big versus small competitive issue. And I think that lots of our, of our audience is dealing with that. Lots of our audience are boutique agency owners that are up against the holding companies and so on. So in, in your experience, what, what is the advantage for to working with a firm like versus the Deloitte's of the world. Yep. And it comes up more and more and we have more and more clients that are leaving only working with the larger firms as they are forced into it. Recently on a call with a client who works with multiple agencies, a global company, who gave us the feedback. We love working with you guys because you are smaller. I don't have to deal with all the bullshit. I don't have to deal with the overages. I don't have to deal with attitudes or I'm better than you or deal with my admin. Because I know when I'm working with people at Wrecking Ball, I'm working with the people who are working on the actual work. Not in India, not in South America. And you guys are just here and you get it done um, over and over and over. And I can't say that for a lot of the other companies that we have to work with. Right, right. I think that's really key. A different topic a little bit that I think is challenging for all companies, but especially agencies, especially for my company too, is, is, is planning, you know, planning versus short, medium, long-term. So I'd love to hear how you approach that, especially given that there's more of a blank slate to what you do. There's a lot of different companies you can work with and then the scope of services is much more of a blank slate. So I'd love to hear how you guys approach planning. Sure. So we are blessed with our long-term contracts that keep the lights on and keep everyone employed. Every We all have the hills and valleys. Um, of income or what's in the pipeline. And because of these base projects, if you will, or longer term projects, that has afforded us the opportunities to experiment certain months to R&D. More other months go after the projects that or work that could be 30, 60, 90 days long. So there's this ebb and flow of the longer term and the shorter term, but having these stable long-term contracts really provides a foundation and they're based on the capital to weather the storm when things are a little bit on the low side, if you will. And at the same time to have the whole staff participate in the wins 
and enjoy the reap the benefits together too. Yeah, that's that's really important. And w- with that in mind, you know, what are you typically doing to get to that level of having a long term contract with somebody? Is there anything that you any steps you guys go through to build enough trust, or maybe to start with a test project or something like that that you found to be effective? Yep, test projects are great. People, like, well, why are you doing work for free? Well, why should they trust us? They can go to anywhere else, and we're not one to answer RFPs. We we will do one or two RFPs a year, and that's it. We will, however, at times, if the whole formula feels right, getting back to that DNA, and if it feels right on the initial call or meeting, then we will spend time to do a little bit of R&D and see if it's worth to pursue any of the initiatives uh, together with these other companies. What has worked is looking at taking these smaller projects in that other companies would not take or taking a gamble. Not looking at long-term, but just by organically, naturally, as we do this first project for them, what is next after that? And what's next after that? And then how can we grow further from there? And case in point would be with AccuWeather, who we picked up uh, last year. We were brought in to redesign their L-Bar for their TV network, which goes down the side and the bottom um, of the network. And that was for relaunching on Fios. They were so thrilled with the process of us working with them and their third-party integrators and really designing visuals for automated software, which is why we're brought in because it's the hybrid of software and UX and UI. Um, We were then brought in to now extend to their launch on DirecTV. And the process, again, was so smooth, but also because we understood what they were looking to accomplish and gave pushback for things that wouldn't work, would work, worked with their their IT company, giving them a backlog of features that we would like for the next two, three years, even though if we're not involved, this is what should be done. And giving that that extra insight and guidance when it wasn't even asked for, also raised the eyebrow and said, well, you guys have been doing this so well. What else do you do at Wrecking Ball? And they had no idea about our whole technology and R&D area. They thought we were just strictly UI and UX to the point where now we'll be doing more and more work for them uh, with back office systems and other projects that I can't get into yet. I'd love to, but more that are outside of the realm of just UI and UX work, but will be more platform-based. Right. And you guys seem like you're very deliberate in terms of the types of companies you want to be working with and the problems you can you can solve for them. So in the, you know, in this test project, is there anything you found to work really well for segueing it into more work? Any ways that you've sort of laid the path forward from the test and beyond in terms of expectation setting, in terms of what you say when that could be, you know, effective for other agencies to learn from? For sure. Yeah. So the the you know, we have our, our project or test project, whatever like to call it, you have your set deliverables along the way through our strategy team, we'll look how we can dig a little deeper. What else can be done that wasn't scoped within here? We do our own scope creep. It's horrible. But what else can we put in this to show how we think, even though we weren't asked to? And a lot of times that gets like, oh, that's really cool. We didn't even think about adding this onto this platform or designing something in a different way or taking the consumer through a different journey uh, or an alternate journey as well. That's that's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. What else can you do? And that's historically how it's how it's moved on uh, to get the little bit and then you know the seed gets planted and then the tree just grows branch by branch right right that's that's really great and shifting gears a little bit i guess i'd love to hear what what trends you're seeing you know maybe in the advertising world or just the world at large that you think agencies or others in this space are not paying enough attention to that's a great question because we're just as guilty as everyone else i'll claim it more personally because there's many people here who have different ideals of what's trending what's not from the conversation i've been having with various brands voice skills are growing the alexa google home type of skills are growing at a rate that many don't know about a lot of being done or even just for internal use only that don't get to be public facing it just helps people are busy around their office doing something they need a piece of information i can't always get to the keyboard and look it up if i can speak speak one thing i'm looking for it just helps me to continue moving along seamlessly whatever else i'm doing 
So in the voice area, um, seeing more within there. I think AI is a dangerous term, uh, not because we're scared of the, the Terminator days, which I think will be coming anyway, but more so it's like when people are claiming about big data, big data, it's a buzzword, but AI has been around for many, many years as well. And it's just a, another buzzword now. And so I think some use cases are pushing a little too far to being claimed as AI. I think machine learning and business intelligence, definitely a case of AI, but offering like a recommendation engine or what movie to watch, which is not really AI, is an area where we're getting turned off. So I think people should, my hope is that people would use the word carefully in what they're seeking when they want to put an RP out there or looking or even answering what do we do as far as AI goes. But the one for me that is a sweet spot is definitely augmented reality and AR. And while it's been on the surface for many years now, and we're seeing slowly more and more apps coming out that or experiences coming out that will use it, we're hearing more and more companies looking at it for also internal use for experiences that they wouldn't normally be able to do. Uh, whether it's a, an iPad usage or for the phone usage, just for enhancing the experience, more so even with Magic Leap and the VR type experience, AR, VR, you know, the Magic Leap side with VR, more than more internal tools that companies are experimenting with right now that can help workflow internally. Put on your goggles, you can still be working on your laptop, but you'll have all this additional metadata that can be coming at you for various things that normally you would not see on your laptop screen or your phone screen as you're part of doing things. I think that we're just at the tip of the AR VR world. Um, and that's where for me, at least personally, I'm excited about. Right. And uh, I guess like what, what companies are you seeing that are doing interesting things there and anything that you can talk about would be great, but if not just in the, in yep, the, so the, the two that, that came to mind, one is for, there's a restaurant group in Manhattan that, which I, without getting to the name of it, they, they had um, a dessert platter experience. And I, this one blew my mind. I'm like, this is a great use case. So dessert comes, you finish a meal, these plates come out, and but they're empty. It has a logo on it. And when I was introduced to this, I had no idea why there's no dessert menu. Like grab your phone or here's our iPad and open the app. And you, when you put your phone or iPad over the plate, each plate had a different dessert that would come to life. And you can rotate it around to 60 and really look at the dessert. So it's just made for a whole conversation and the dinner were stuff yeah coffee dessert but the conversation went on for another 45 minutes about how these desserts look on the plate as opposed to bringing out real desserts they can't bring out the real desserts because then after three four hours they're not going to look the same anyway but just having the phone and or the ipad to be able to use as a dessert menu that can change on a daily basis that was pretty neat uh, ar experience the other one that there's two more that i liked on the vr side was this was for the uh, Miami Dolphins in their arena for ticket sales. You can go online and you know kind of view, but they were using Oculus for certain seats where you went to an event. And if you were to look at what, where your seats could be, put on the Oculus and you look around the stadium and you see where the seats would be. It was a great use case. If, if I buy these tickets, this is what the view would be of the field for me. If I go upstairs further, this is where the view would be. And it was pretty accurate. Uh, so that was a really cool way to get the consumer more involved in the technology, but really where you can be. If I'm going to spend this investment I, on season tickets, I can see where I'm going to be. Well, I'm in an empty stadium, of course. Uh, that was a, that was a great use case. But the other one I was thinking of, it's a winery in California. So my favorite example of recent is the company that produces 19 Crimes wine. 19 Crimes and a lot of the associated brands came to market as a story behind the wine. Every month you go to the supermarket or a market and there's hundreds of bottles of wine, how do you differentiate? 
So their take on it was, well, you're going to get immersed with the product. And 19 Crimes, you download the app, you put the open up the app and scan the bottle, and the bottle comes to life. And it tells a story behind the person that's on the bottle that produces these crimes. And the story gets deeper and deeper and deeper, which then extended to other brands. And it put their foothold into an area and got into an area that all of a sudden the brand blew up. The wine is really good too, but they used AR and the app as an experience to connect with consumers that normally they may not have connected with. Now they're because of the success with that, there's 20 something brands in their portfolio. They're looking at ways to leverage digital and brands that were essentially not digital focused at all. Right, right. Those are some some cool examples. And I guess like, you know, how accessible do you think that is now in terms of you guys being able to do that for companies or your average agency being able to implement that versus, you know, is it perceived to be very difficult or is it something that is, is right there? It's still not as easy as it is for a general person or company to do it. There are some skills involved that takes time to learn or the proper software to get, or how do we publish this to the app store or what's the queue and the R&D involved in order to bring these visions to life. Now, it is getting easier because there are more and more tools available to be able to record or interact or test or pre-flight or everything we're looking to interact. But a lot of it still comes down to trial and error and R&D. Right, right. That, that makes a lot of sense. Another subject change. One question I love to ask is, what were you worried about in the early days of running your your agency, later consultancy, that turned out to be unfounded and something that wasn't worth worrying about all along? Great question. There really hasn't been much. There really hasn't been much that I have not worried about that wound up being an issue later on. The things that we do worry about have been issues and and problematic, and they've gone away, or we've changed course to avert any issues and, and continue surviving. The ones that possibly were problematic really come down to things out of our control, uh, like just internal client politics and reorgs in these organizations. Uh, but as far as design or technology, retaining staff, it's it's always just been pushing forward and charging ahead. But the, the, the biggest worries have been really what's next in the pipeline, I guess, what's next in the funnel. Mm-hmm. And with these changes at our clients, what does that mean for us as a partner company? Those have been more of the running the, the day-to-day. Probably uh, health insurance, honestly, from the business side. Yeah, we have fun with everything we do, but health insurance and making sure that the staff is taken care of has been has been an issue for years, especially with the change with the Affordable Care Act coming in and just covering those costs for staff. And as the services have gone down, prices have gone up, um, only so far you can bury insurance costs into the daily hourly rate or how you're billing as a company. So that's pretty much, I guess, for, for me, health insurance has been yeah. completely yeah. Yeah. answer. <laughs> no, it's, that's, that's, a, that's a great answer. And I think it's something that, that you know, lots of agencies are up against. One thing that I found interesting was, is you mentioned the concept of reorgs and these forces outside of your control. And I'm sure that's a bigger deal, especially when you're tied at the hip to maybe fewer accounts if you have a, a wider scope and so on. I'm sure there's not going to be a silver bullet answer to this, but is there anything you guys have, have done historically that might not be obvious to hedge against that risk? We don't get involved in politics. Mm-hmm. So even though we might not agree with certain people or like certain people that we have to work with, we'll still treat them with respect and get them their goals. That has come pay dividends forward over at times where an agenda does become put onto their plate and all of a sudden we're the heroes. But at certain times you're like that annoying little five-year-old kid that you keep wanting to you know, push away but it's not in, in their scope. And it could be the thinking of it as, as the individual units, the way to do it. Because you have people, there might be a big reorg in the company, but those people are going to usually land on their feet in some other company and they're going to remember you and the relationship's going to stay intact. 
this is yeah, this is true too. Our, our best salespeople are our clients. Just we don't have salespeople, and when they go from one company to another, they try to bring us with them as best as they can. Of course, the new company they have their own people or in agencies or consultants in line. So that's when it becomes a dog and pony and doing the presentations as to why we should be included in the circle. And that's fun as well, trying to crack that nut. It's like dating. And, you know, what, what can we do? How can we get in? What are you missing? What are your pain points? And then finding that one little nugget again, even if it's a small thing, and then getting in there and, and growing that relationship. Um, and it takes time, time, time and perseverance. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good lesson to end on is that there's few quick fixes when you're dealing with this level of complexity and this level of business. Joey, how can people get in touch with you? My email address is jprince at getrect.com. That's the best way. J-P-R-I-N-C-Z at getrec.com. Happy to answer any questions or help any way possible. Awesome. Thanks again, Joey. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Again, if you are ready to grow your agency and you want an eight-point cheat sheet for building a sustainable revenue engine, then you want to check out our agency new business checklist. And you can find that by going to saleschema.com slash checklist. Again, saleschema.com slash checklist. And I look forward to catching you on the next episode. Thank you.